Section 11 of Psychotherapy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sławek Księżycki. Psychotherapy by Hugo Minsterberg. Section 11, Part 1. The Mental Symptoms. We have discussed both the psychological theory and the practical work of psychotherapy in a systematic order without any reference to personal chance experience. After studying the fundamental principles we have sketched the whole field of disturbances in which psychotherapeutic influence might be possible and all the methods available. It seems natural that our next step should be an illustrating of such work by a number of typical cases. Here it seems advisable to leave the track of an objective system and to turn to the record of personal observation. As this is not a handbook for the physician dealing with the special forms of disease, we emphasize before that we avoid even any attempt in such a direction because it would have to introduce not only the questions of diagnosis, but above all, the highly important questions of treatment by physical agencies. We saw that for us nothing else can be desirable but to show the way in which the various symptoms which suggest mental treatment occur and how they yield to the psychical methods. We had also agreed beforehand that for a first survey we might separate the mental from the bodily symptoms and group the mental ones with reference to the predominance of ideational, emotional and volitional factors. And finally it may be said that we abstain from everything which is exceptional or even unusual and confine ourselves to the routine observations with which the psychotherapist comes in contact every day and the simplest country physician surely every week. Thus I turn from systematic objectivity to my unsystematic reminiscences of many years. Of course they abound with eccentric abnormities and startling phenomena. As I have devoted myself to psychotherapeutics, always and only from scientific interest, as a part of my laboratory studies and therefore have refused to spend any time on cases which offered no special psychological interest to me, the striking and sensational cases have prevailed in my practice even to an unusual degree. Yet they are unessential for our purposes here, the more as their interest lies mostly in the complex structure of the mental state while the curative features are in the background. Our purpose of demonstrating practical cases as they occur in every village and as they ought to be understood and treated by every doctor thus rules out just those experiences which would be prominent in a theoretical study of abnormal psychology. We want to select only simple commonplace cases. Only those who have not learned to see are unaware that such cases are everywhere about them. As a matter of course, 
I also leave out everything which refers to insanity, that is every mental disturbance which lies essentially outside of the domain of psychotherapy. The helpful influence which psychical factors can exert in the asylums for the insane is, as we emphasized, entirely secondary. The psychotherapeutic methods, in the narrower sense of the word, are in the present state of our knowledge ineffective in the insane asylum. I should also be unable to speak of laboratory experience with insanity as I insist on sanitarium treatment in every such case. The question of how to differentiate the diagnosis of insanity from that of the other mental abnormities is not our question at this moment. I select the few illustrations which seem to me desirable for the purpose of making more concrete our abstract discussion of methods, essentially from the class of neurasthenics, psychosthenics, hysterics, and so on. In all these reports I shall confine the account to the few points which are to illustrate the psychical factors, thus abstaining entirely from the further details which any medical history of the cases would demand and from all results of further examination and other particulars. As a matter of course, I exclude the possibility of identifying the patient. I may start with a typical case of obsessing ideas of simplest character and with simple routine treatment illustrating the emphasis of antagonistic ideas. A man of mature age, well educated, well built and in every respect in good health, without nervous history and without other nervous symptoms suffered vehemently by the persistent recurrence of a visual image which entirely absorbed his attention. He knew exactly the development of his trouble. A woman, acquaintance of his, had committed suicide by poisoning herself. He knew her slightly, and the emotion of personal loss played hardly any role in the case. But he had met her at a gay dinner a short time before her death. The news of the suicide came to him when he was overtired from work. The idea of the contrast between seeing his friend partaking of the dinner and imagining her drinking the poison gave him a strong shock. There was hardly any grief mixed in. He remembers that he shrieked at the thought of the contrast, and in that moment the visual image of the woman raising a glass of poison to her mouth flashed into his mind and thus became almost a part of the shock. From that time on the memory image of this scene returned more and more frequently. At first it associated itself with any chance mentioning of death or suicide and to a very slight degree with the idea of a meal. More and more any element of a meal and of social life the word soup or meat, the word gown or dance, brought up at once the picture of the woman, which had in the meantime lost every element of personal relation. Any sad thought of her ending had faded away. It remained merely a troublesome impression. The man fought against it by trying to suppress the idea, but the more he fought against it, 
the more insistently it rushed forward through new and ever new association paths. Any advertisement in the newspaper referring to food, anything in a shop window referring to latest dresses, any household utensils related to a meal, and especially the meals themselves, forced the visual image into the center and captured the attention to such a degree that the confusing distraction from the real surroundings resulted. The struggle against the idea became more and more exasperating, made life a torture, almost suggested despair, even faint thoughts of suicide, and especially a growing fear that it was a symptom of the beginning of insanity. When he came to me, a number of physical cures, especially bromides and electricity, had been tried in vain by the physician. Some weeks in the country had not changed the distress. He came to me with the direct request, as a last resort, to try hypnotic treatment. I found in spite of the fact that he and his physician had constantly spoken of visual hallucinations, that the visual image had no hallucinatory character at all, that is, he never believed that he saw the image of that woman as if it were actually present. He never took the product of his imagination for reality, nor had it the vividness and character of reality. It was hardly more vivid than any landscape which he tried to remember, only that it controlled the interplay of ideas in such a persistent way. I found that he was a strong visualizer and easily suggestible. I told him beforehand that I should hypnotize him only to a slight degree, that he should not lose consciousness, that he would remember everything which I told him. Then I asked him to lie down and had him gaze on a crystal only for half a minute, then close the eyes. I asked him to relax and to think of sleep. With the two bland points of a compass, I touched his two cheeks at corresponding places, then his forehead. And now I told him that I would begin with the hypnotic influence. I put my hand on his forehead and spoke to him in a monotonous way, saying that he felt a fatigue in his shoulders and in his arms, creeping over his whole body, and assured him that he was now fully hypnotized. To what degree he really was hypnotized cannot be said, as no effort was made to test it by any experiments, thus avoiding any possible reaction against the feeling of submission. Expression and breathing indicated a slight hypnotic state. Then I removed my hand and spoke to him in a warm and assuring way. I told him that in the future he would give his full attention to his meal and not give the slightest attention to any image of his friend. If he should think of the friend, the memory would appear indifferent, he would not even notice the image and would give his whole mind to the objects with which he was engaged. In the same way, when he should be reading newspapers or looking in window shops, his whole attention would belong to that which he really perceived. Any passing inner image would be ignored. Then I awoke him from his sleep. He was unwilling to believe that he had been in hypnosis at all. 
I told him that the effect would prove it, and in his fully wakeful state I explained to him why there was not the slightest fear of insanity justified, that it was a psychosthenic state resulting from fatigue and shock, and from a wrong attitude of his attention during the past months, and then I asked him to return the next day. Intentionally I had not given the suggestion that the image would disappear. I could not expect it would disappear entirely after a first treatment, and even a faint appearance of it would have at once fascinated the attention, and brought about the whole disturbance of the equilibrium, which might become habitual. Instead of it, I gave the impulse to the counter-idea, that is, I reinforced the attention towards that which he really saw around him, and thus withdrew the attention from the rival image in the mind. The success was complete. He came the next day in a much happier frame of mind, reporting that he still had seen the image of the woman every few minutes, especially strongly at the breakfast table, but it had no longer troubled him. It was more in the background of consciousness. Sometimes it appeared transparent, it no longer held his attention, and he felt free to give his full attention to the actual surroundings. On that basis I hypnotized him the second day, and he had hardly heard me saying that he ought to try to sleep when he was evidently in a much deeper hypnotic state than the first time. Again I suggested only the opposite attitude, the positive turning to the surroundings and the complete neglect and indifference for the possible memory image. This time the effect was still stronger. On the third day he reported that he still saw the image, but he no longer minded it, as it was like a veil through which he looked at real objects, and that left him entirely indifferent. His mind was hardly engaged with it any more. The real spell of the attention was broken. On the basis of this situation I took the last step and suggested that the image of the woman would disappear altogether and would not trouble him any more. In the next twenty-four hours it still returned two or three times, but colorless and faint. The following day I was able to eliminate it altogether. Even when the last trace of the inner struggle between the memory and the perceived surroundings had disappeared, I went on with two hypnotic sittings to give stability to the new equilibrium, to insist that the image would not come back and to settle completely that inner repose with which every fear of possible disease evaporated. I feel sure that the cure would not have been reached so quickly, possibly not at all, if the second suggestion, the disappearance of the image, had been given at the first step. The improvement was secured because the antagonistic process itself was used for the suggestion. On the other hand, there was no doubt that in this case the strong will of the patient or suggestion in a normal state would not alone have been sufficient. The hypnotic treatment was indicated by the symptoms and justified by the results. I may take another typical case in which also the obsession was brought about by an idea without emotional value, or at least by an idea which had lost its emotional character 
the idea came somewhat nearer to hallucination but had its chief elements on tactual ground where the transition from image to hallucinatory perception is easier i add this case to demonstrate that hypnosis is not the only open way of treatment in such cases and that the variation must always be adjusted to the special conditions the case gains importance by the fact that the patient was himself a physician well trained in mental observation the patient is a highly educated physician of middle age he reports that he had been neurasthetic all his life with slight ever-changing symptoms he has always been troubled by the perseveration of tactual images which had a strong feeling tone and which were associated with seen or heard reports of the experiences of the others for instance when he read in a newspaper that someone had hurt his hand with a pin or that someone had cut his foot on a nail he immediately felt a not directly painful but uncomfortable sensation at the particular place in the hand or in the foot together with a shrinking of the whole body and such tactual sensation usually returned during the following days in fainter and fainter form until it faded away most troublesome had always been the reading of any torture processes in historical books or in fiction yet there had never been a case in which the sensations really had the vividness of hallucinations and never a case in which the after effects had not disappeared at least in a few weeks this time the effect had already lasted four months and it became more and more troublesome the patient had not the slightest fear of mental disease and no anxiety but he felt a very serious disturbance by the instinctive effort to get rid of the intrusion the place of the disturbance was the wrists the starting point was a definite experience on an unusually hot summer day the physician had listened for a long time to the complaints of a female patient who suffered vehemently from a nervous fear of scissors and knives and who was afraid that she would cut her artery at the wrist he believes that it was the exhausting heat of the day which weakened him to a point where the story of his patient affected him very strongly and made him think of it all the time yet there was no sensation element involved a few hours later he sat in a hotel at his dinner just in front of him a butler started to curve a duck with a long sharp knife in that moment he felt as if the knife passed through the wrists of both arms he felt for a moment almost faint arms and legs were contracted and an almost painful sensation lingered in the skin and did not disappear for hours from that day at the sight of knives or razors not only in his hands or his direct neighborhood but also in a store and finally in a picture stirred up at once the optical image of that curving knife cutting into the skin of the wrist only with the difference that it seldom was found in both arms usually in the one or the other 
the sensation became a strictly tactual one with optical overtone but there was no emotion in it the pain element had disappeared also the shock which still recurred in the first day slowly disappeared the longer the symptom lasted the more the optical factor faded away and the tactual factor came into the foreground after three or four weeks perhaps seeing a razor in a store window or a pocket knife open no longer stirred up the image of cutting the wrist but simply a strong tactual sensation as if the skin of the wrist was scratched and pinched finally after about two months the association character disappeared to a high degree and the scratching and cutting sensation in the skin became independent and automatic the patient awoke in the morning with a vivid tactual hallucination of being cut without associating with it any picture of a knife throughout the day in the midst of work and in the midst of conversation sometimes one and sometimes the other wrist became the center of the exasperating sensation easily bringing with it involuntary reaction as if to withdraw the arm this became more and more frequent and more and more vivid the doctor fully aware of the borderland character of this experience felt sure that his inner fight against the disturbance would get control of it the usual tonics did not show any influence on the other hand there were no other nervous symptoms and with his most acute analysis he did not find the slightest trace of emotion any longer when the symptoms reached a point at which they seriously interfered with his comfort he asked me for psychotherapeutic treatment under the condition that i was not to apply hypnotism he was absolutely averse to the use of hypnotism in his own case because he was afraid that to be hypnotized would mean for him a certain disposition to fall into hypnotic sleep by autosuggestion as he knew the vividness of his imaginative sensations he wanted to avoid that the more as his own professional work might sometimes demand hypnotizing in his own practice in any case he had an aversion to it and asked for other means under these circumstances it seemed to me the most logical conclusion that the counter idea with its antagonistic reactions might be reinforced by direct perception the abnormal tactual sensation forced on consciousness the idea of cutting off the wrist the necessary counteraction would be to force to consciousness the idea of the uninjured wrist and the corresponding reactions as the wrist can be easily made accessible to sight and as i anticipated that the visual sensations would be more forceful than the tactual ones i told him to look straight at his own wrists for ten minutes three times a day after waking after luncheon and before going to bed he had to hold his two forearms close in front of his eyes and stare at them giving his full attention to the visual impression of the smooth uninjured skin of the wrist if during this process the tactual counter sensations were vivid he had to go on with the staring at both arms both held near together 
until the perception had crowded out the rival touch sensation. When this performance had been carried out six times, he did not notice the coming up of the tactual sensation with vividness any longer. From the third day it had disappeared entirely. I told him to go on with the process still every morning for some weeks. The physician himself considered the cure as complete. Our first case dealt with hypnosis. Our second case removed the intruding idea by a perception in a waking state. To point at once to the variety of methods which we sketched, we may turn again to a case of emotionless idea removed by the method of switching off and sidetracking the originating and psychological complex. The patient is a school teacher in the Middle West, a nervous, thin-looking woman of about 25. Her only complaint is a persistent idea that she may at any time get a child. She has had this idea as long as she can remember, according to her first expression. She never had any intimate acquaintance with any man, she was never engaged, she hated bitterly every thought of immorality, she knows and has assured herself by much reading that it is entirely impossible that she might get a child without sexual contact. Yet this thought recurs to her all the time, even when she is talking with other people. It embarrasses her in school, in spite of her teaching only girls in a private institution. This thought keeps her away from company, and the effect of its embarrassing occurrence depresses her. But she is sure that the thought itself does not include any emotion. It is a mere thinking of it, with a full consciousness that it is absurd, and yet she cannot suppress it. I began at once to try to find the origin of her queer obsession. After some efforts to pierce into her memories, we came to an experience of her youth. When she was about thirteen years of age, a young girl, whom she had admired much for her beauty, living in the neighborhood of her parents, suddenly got a child, which died after a few days. At that time no thought of immorality seems to have entered into that news. It was evidently mere sadness about the quick death of the child which gave to the experience its emotional tone. She was at that time completely naive. She received an intense shock in the thought that an unmarried girl may suddenly get a child which would then quickly die. She cannot tell whether the thought that she herself would get a child had ever entered her mind before this occurrence in her neighborhood, nor can she say that it occurred immediately or very soon after it. She now knows only that she has always had that thought, but whether that means more than ten years, she does not know. I consider it a justifiable hypothesis that this strong emotional experience early in life had become the starting point for that secondary absurd thought. I consider that primary experience as a cause for a deep physiological brain excitement 
which had irradiated towards the ideas of her personality. It had stirred up their associations, which kept their psychological character, while the primary disturbance had long lost its psychical accompaniment. It worked its mischief in a physiological sphere, but was probably still the starting point for the persistent obsession. My aim was to remove this cause. It would have brought little improvement simply to suppress the freak idea as long as that physiological source was active. On the other hand, I should not have the means to stop the physiological after-effects of that real experience. I had to sidetrack it and to secure thus a reduction. I decided, therefore, to work on the basis of that hypothesis to accept that physiological complex as existing, but to switch it off by linking it with appropriate associations, thus setting it right in the whole system of her thoughts. For that purpose I brought her into a hypnoid state, bending her head backwards and speaking to her with slow voice until I saw that a slight drowsy state was reached. In this state I asked her to think back as vividly as she could of that experience of her youth, to fancy herself meeting that pretty girl, her neighbor, once more. She is to imagine that she speaks with her. Now I make her talk with me, and she assures me that she sees the scene distinctly. She believes that she sees the girl on the street. I asked her to tell the girl how indignant she feels over her behavior. She is to tell her that she understands now all which she did not understand in her childhood, that she knows now that she must have lived an immoral life, that she must have had a friend, and that a pure girl like herself could never under any circumstances come into such a situation, that no pure girl could suddenly have a child. She is to express to the other girl her deepest disapproval of such conduct, and her own feeling of happiness that anything like that could never happen to her. In accordance with my demands, she worked herself entirely into the scene. Without using audible voice, she internally spoke with great vividness to her neighbor. When I awoke her from her drowsy state, she was quite exhausted from the excitement. I repeated that scene with her four times. She assured me that she felt it every time more dramatically. The power of the obsession weakened from the first day. After the fourth time, it had disappeared. The subcortical complex had evidently found its normal channels of discharge. End of section 11, part 1. Recording by Sławek Księżycki.